I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, welcome back for another episode, folks. We are broadcasting from the great state of South Dakota once again, where under God, the people will rule. It's starting to feel like fall around here, a little bit of a chill in the air, and I love it. We get to pull out the jeans and the flannel shirts and the sweaters and you know, I know the, the time at the lake is maybe drawn to a close, but I, I really do like uh, fall, a great season. We also, as listeners to this broadcast will know, are remembering October as Respect Life Month. October is, uh, we're taking the opportunity on this show to kind of walk through uh, a different angle of the, the pro-life movement uh, throughout each of our uh, episodes in the month of October. Last week had a great conversation with Leslie Unruh the founder of the Alpha Center. If you missed that episode, you can go back and take a listen. The Alpha Center is just a really wonderful pregnancy help center in the state of South Dakota. We're going to be kind of returning a little bit to that at the end of the month with the attorney that represents the Alpha Center. Gotten a number of questions from listeners. Hey, what's going on with this litigation? It's at the Eighth Circuit right now. So we're going to unpack that litigation at the end of the month. In the meantime, we're going to kind of dive into some federal angles on the pro-life movement talk a little bit about what's been happening under the Biden administration. Uh, last couple of years, um, what was happening at Health and Human Services, EEOC, and more recently, what's been happening in the new federal administration. Really excited to welcome to our program today, Rachel Morrison. Rachel's an expert in this stuff. She's a policy analyst at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, where she works on their HHS accountability project. That's the Health and Human Services accountability project. As an attorney, she... Um, her, her work is focused on religious liberty, healthcare rights of conscience, the right to life, non-discrimination, and civil rights before joining the Ethics and Public Policy Center, where listeners, the, this broadcast, it's a think tank where you might recognize such uh, big Catholic names as, as, as George Weigel, Roger Severino, uh, Mary Hassan. Before joining that, that great organization, she served as an attorney, advisor, and special assistant uh, to the general counsel at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in the federal government. She focused on religious discrimination issues and was a member of their religious discrimination work group in the G GC's office. Before that, litigation counsel at Americans United for Life and a constitutional law fellow at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, defending the right to life, religious freedom for all, she has uh, clerked on the U.S. Court of Federal Claims. Her legal analysis has been published in a number of great law reviews, Seton Hall, Pepperdine, Ave Maria, and elsewhere. She got her JD, Juris Doctorate degree, magna cum laude, from Pepperdine University School of Law. I could go on. It's just uh, really excited to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thanks, Chris. Pleasure to be here. I, you know, it's we're gonna kind of jump into some really kind of some t uh, technical and complex stuff. And you're you're a lawyer. Can I ask you? I know you're 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 a person of faith, and I know this is maybe out of left field because I didn't ask you this when we were talking on the phone the other day. I asked you about your faith a little bit, but now I'm just like, you've got this really s just stunning resume as a lawyer. Can I ask what attracted you to the law? when you were making that decision as a, as a young person? Well, uh, I think when I was young, I liked to argue. So, uh, uh -huh. you know, what appealed to me, 
my parent my parents will appreciate that. Um, but I think what what attracted me to law eventually was that it combined uh, different skills and talents I had. Um, I studied uh, math and speech communication in college, which is an unusual combination. Uh, when I got to college, there was so many options and I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to law school or what I wanted to do, but I knew I liked math and solving problems and uh, I enjoyed uh, speech and debate and arguing. So I, so I did that as well. And then um, I think God just kind of used that and then it came back together at the end of college and I decided law school would be a great option and uh, I could use the skills and talents, critical thinking, problem solving, public speaking uh, that I had studied. And it was actually a really good combination for law school. That's great. So you probably liked those logic games on the LSAT, didn't yes. you? Yeah. That, that, was my, that was my favorite <laughs> section. I did those for fun and I had a uh, stop myself and study the other sections as well. Uh, <laughs> that's that's great. So it's, I'm just delighted that uh, you've chosen this profession. It's really important that uh, people of faith and smart people enter it. So I know we've got some um, listeners right now that are either uh, you know younger lawyers or in law school thinking about law school. So what a what a great role model. Okay, let's get to it because there's a lot to, lot to talk about here. Um, you know, as we were kind of just prepping a little bit the other day and visiting about like, oh, what do we talk about? There's so much happening at the federal level. One of the things that that you mentioned um, was a recent action um, by the Federal Health and Human Services Department concerning the Title X program. I want to just unpack that a little bit. And so can you explain, maybe give a little bit of background if you need to, but explain what happened and why it's important, especially for pro-lifers. So Title X is a federal program that provides federal financial assistance to healthcare organizations that provide voluntary family planning services. Uh, these projects uh, provide a range of services um, that are acceptable and effective family planning methods, um, such as natural family planning, um, methods, infertility services, uh, contraception, uh, services for adolescents, uh, services for low-income um, individuals. Uh, but part of the act uh, is Section 1008, which prohibits uh, all Title X funds from being used in programs where abortion is a method of family planning. Uh, and so uh, Title X was created, but Congress decided that funds should not be used for abortion within the scope of Title X. Yeah. But historically, Planned Parenthood uh, has been a large recipient of Title X funds. And so they've been using uh, grant monies for uh, not for the abortion procedure itself, but to create this infrastructure and to support their other services. Um, and as we know, money is fungible. And so they're using federal taxpayer dollars to then support uh, their bottom line, which is abortion. Uh, so in 2019, uh, under the Trump administration, HHS issued a new rule um, that required physical and financial separation uh, between the Title X projects and uh, the provision um, and promotion of abortion um, to ensure that uh, the funds were not being used uh, in places where abortion is a method of family planning, which obviously at Planned Parenthood, abortion is uh, the primary method of family planning there. Um, the rule also uh, prohibited um, 
abortion referrals um, and uh, before abortion counseling, uh, like non-directive abortion counseling, which basically means that you can explain abortion, but you um, you can't uh, encourage someone to get it. But this non-directive counseling was required, which, as you can imagine, violated the conscience rights of other other groups uh, that do not support abortion. Um, and so now this counseling was no longer required under this rule um, and referrals were not required as well. Uh, as uh, you can probably imagine, Planned Parenthood was not very happy about this uh, yeah. because abortion is their is their number one priority. Um, so they, um, along with several states, sued over this rule. Um, of note, one of the states was California, um, and leading the charge was uh, then Attorney General. Uh, Xavier Becerra. Um, and if his name sounds familiar, it's because he is now the head of the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, and so he's in charge of the agency that is now um, undoing, undoing these rules um, and in charge of the agency uh, that had all these rules that he sued when he uh, sued over when he was uh, in California. So uh, there was lawsuits in Washington, Oregon, California, Maine, and Maryland. Um, and the uh, thankfully, the law was upheld in um, Washington, Oregon, California, and Maine. Um, in Maryland, uh, the court said that the rule was enjoined or that it couldn't be enforced, like in Maryland specifically. But in the rest of the country, it was uh, it was in effect. Um, as a result, Planned Parenthood dropped out of the Title X program. So this was a significant step where Planned Parenthood uh, chose abortion over their Title X clients, and they uh, for uh, they uh, forego the the federal funds um, because they didn't like the strings attached of not being able to uh, counsel or refer for abortion in the Title X program. So this was a big win uh, to help stop uh, federal <laughs> funds and taxpayer dollars from going towards um, Planned Parenthood. So, it, and if I recall, it, it was to the tune of like $60 million. Is that correct? I mean, it's, so it's not a small that, that amount of money. About right. It's been a yeah. while since I looked sure. at the numbers, but I think yeah. something around there. Um, so it was so it was a big, a big step, a drop in the bucket for their entire budget. But every every little bit helps. Um, and so fast forward to uh, 2021, uh, we have President Biden and uh, HHS Secretary Xavier Becerra. Um, they proposed a new rule. Uh, this rule basically undid everything that the 2019 rule did. Um, there's no more physical or financial separation uh, between abortion services and uh, Title X projects. This means that you could go in for Title X services and there can be a poster or a sign up for abortion, or you can be getting counseling for um for uh, family planning, not abortion in one room and then right next door, walk in and get an abortion. Um, and so that's so this separation is no longer required. Um, as a side note, in the in the main case, uh, main family planning sued over the rule um, and they admitted in their court briefs that if they didn't receive Title 10 funds, they wouldn't be able to provide abortion, sure. which is a direct uh, admissal that they were using their title fund title 10 funding to support their abortion services because if they couldn't provide abortion but for those funds uh, then then uh, then that means that they were violating um, the terms of using those funds to support their abortion services so the 2021 rule uh, takes away this physical and financial separation. They also require abortion counseling and referrals. Uh, and so uh, there was a lot of 
um, a lot of public comments during the public comment period talking about how this is a violation of conscience rights and uh, I mean, people should not be required to uh, counsel or refer for abortions. Uh, there was one footnote in the regulations that they added in that said uh, there are federal conscience protection laws um, that might, might apply. No discussion of whether whether the counseling or referrals are not required, if you have a conscience objection or how HHS would evaluate um, a grant uh, a grant proposal if uh, someone did have a conscience objection. Uh, they said in the uh, kind of the explanation of the rule that providers could file complaints with the Office for Civil Rights at HHS. So basically, we won't tell you how these rules apply, but you can complain to us uh, if we don't give you the grants because you won't comply with uh, the abortion counseling and referrals. So that rule uh, went into effect on Thursday. So if, if I can maybe just give kind of a bottom line uh, for that, is it is it seems that if we want to defund Planned Parenthood as sort of a political objective, keeping it from having access to these Title Ten dollars would be sort of a primary place. But it, which which had been done previously, and we've just the the present administration has completely reversed that. They're now funding Planned Parenthood again in what seems to be really a uh, a workaround to the Hyde Amendment. Is that a is that a fair recap of what you've just told us? So, so there's so there's a uh, many different funding streams that Planned Parenthood gets from the federal government. Title Ten being one of them. Yep. Um, and so, uh, so the the grants for the next year, the next cycle, haven't actually been given. So Planned Parenthood technically hasn't received new Title Ten funds. Gotcha. Uh, but now there's nothing stopping them from receiving those funds, and they were a big recipient uh, before. Uh, and I misspoke slightly. I said the rule went into effect Thursday. It was published on Thursday. Gotcha. With, uh, to go into effect uh, 60 days, or sorry, 30, 30 days. So uh, November 8th, I believe it is. Um, so that rule will will go into effect if um, if it's not sued by somebody to, to enjoin it or to stop it and a court agrees. I mean, it, it really just seems a bit like, so this Xavier Becerra guy, who is the attorney general of California, who... Uh, on this show, we I think we've called him before the nun sewer. That's that's what he that's what he's kind of famous for. He he sued nuns to try and make them provide abortifacients in their in their healthcare plans at their long term care facilities that they're running. Um, and I mean, it came up in his confirmation hearings. Unfortunately, he still got confirmed, but now he's just sort of undoing um, all the things that he was trying to you know fight uh, fight for as the attorney general. Now he's in a position of power to undo it. Can we, we could probably talk about that for another, you know, for the rest of the show, but there's some other stuff I want to cover. And there's something that's happening with separate payments. Do you, uh, so with the, uh, the Affordable Care Act, which uh, colloquially is called Obamacare, going back, you know, almost 10 years now, um, there, there was kind of, because we've got the Hyde Amendment, right? And, and I think people on the show will know by now that the Hyde Amendment ke- keeps us from using federal dollars, be it, you know, Medicare, et cetera, from funding abortions. So can you help us understand what was happening or is happening with uh, insurer payments under the Affordable Care Act? Yeah, so as everyone probably knows, there was a big fight over whether Obamacare or the ACA should be, should be passed. And uh, part of the deal of passing um, Obamacare was that uh, the plans would not be required to cover 
cover abortion. They could cover abortion, but they weren't required to. Um, and another another key element of that was that uh, federal funds would not be used to to pay for abortion um, that were prohibited under the under the Hyde Amendment. Um, and so, a key part of this provision was that. Um, uh, issuers or insurers uh, collect separate payments um, from individuals for uh, their abortion services that um, for where federal funding is prohibited and that they put those funds into separate allocation accounts. Uh, under Obama, um, they said that separate payments meant that you could collect a uh, collect one bill um, as long as it was itemized, or if you just provided a notice at the beginning of the plan year that the plan covered abortion, um, or you could collect a sep- or you could bill separately and then actually collect what a separate payment. Um, under Trump, they said that uh, a single combined bill is not a, or su- single combined payment is not a separate payment. And so you needed to issue separate bills and receive separate payments. Um, it couldn't be combined. Uh, this rule uh, went into effect in uh, 2019. Again, uh, California, under uh, now Secretary Becerra, sued to invalidate this rule, um, as did uh, Planned Parenthood and uh, and other and other states as well. Um, the rule was enjoined in court. Um, it was appealed in the middle of litigation, but uh, come January 2021, administration shifted and. Um, HHS now now doesn't like this rule. They issued a rule <clears throat> um, a couple a couple a couple weeks ago um, that said that this going back to the Obama the Obama rules where the um, a single combined payment satisfies this separate payment separate payment requirement, um, which it blow, blows my mind how a single like one payment means a separate payment. Um, Even if you itemize a bill, one payment is not a separate payment. Um, And so this rule, uh, this is the rule that goes into effect in 60 days. So end of, end of November. So, yeah. I was just going to say this, uh, this is, you know, sometimes we don't even think about like our health insurance. We just sort of pay the premium and and we're happy to go to the doctor when we, when we get sick. What, what is this? Why why does this matter? Like where's the rubber meet the road for, let's say pro-lifers um, who are, you know, uh, on their employer's health plan, et cetera. Why, why does this matter particularly to us? So, so the separate, so the separate payment uh, was important for a couple of reasons. One, uh, for transparency, so that consumers know that their plan covers abortion. If yeah. they're having to pay a separate payment for abortion, uh, they're going to realize that their plan covers abortion. If there's no separate payment, if there's just a notice in the middle of pages and pages and pages of plan documents that that no one reads, you might not realize that your plan covers abortion and you might be paying for abortion in violation of your conscience rights. Uh, the other benefit is um, accountability, um, that the, the funds are completely separate. They're not commingled at any point. Um, if these funds are supposed to end up in separate uh, separate accounts at the end of the day, it just makes more sense to keep it separate from the beginning and not mush the funds together and then try to separate it later. Uh, so it's uh, so with this rule, individuals will be paying for abortion coverage in their plans without knowing it and in violation of their conscience rights. Yeah. And I mean, I guess as for for myself as a consumer, that's something I would want to know. Does my plan, because if we're all paying into that risk pool, if we're, you know, participants in the plan, we're all, you know, potentially paying for things that are just really uh, a huge burden upon my, my conscience. So yeah, great. 
Um, thanks for thanks for bringing that up. I before we spoke the other day, I wasn't even even aware of that, but really important. You know, one of the things that that we've been talking about lately too in South Dakota have been state conscience protections, sort of putting a cause of action for a, a private individual in state law, so that let's say a you know a nurse or a healthcare worker whose conscience has been violated, they've they've actually got recourse locally. You know, and one of the arguments we've made is, hey, this is necessary. Because whatever protections uh, are in place at the federal level, they're not going in force. The cause of action doesn't belong to the individual. What can you tell us about what uh, kind of what this, the current state of play is at the federal level? I know there's a headline about uh, Vermont Hospital a couple of weeks ago. What's the update uh, in that territory? So the federal government, uh, there's, there's a number of uh, federal conscience protection laws that are supposed to protect healthcare providers from um, having to uh, per- participate uh, in abortion or sterilization or providing contraception or ver- various um, procedures that violate their conscience. Um, these laws are tied to um, tied to uh, federal government funding. So if there's a violation, the remedy is the entity loses federal funding. And so, as you said, there's no private cause of action where an individual who's had their conscience rights violated uh, can sue in federal court. Uh, It's up to the federal government to enforce this. Uh, So there was a case where um, a nurse at the University of Vermont Medical Center, or UVMMC, apparently Vermont is VM. I didn't didn't realize that before. Um, So at UVMMC, she had told her employer that uh, she had a religious objection to to providing abortion. Um, But despite this known objection that she had, she was scheduled to perform an elective abortion. They misled her uh, because they knew of her objection um, that it was not actually an abortion procedure until she walked into the room. The doctor said, don't hate me when she walks in. Uh, And in that moment, she had to make a decision of whether to participate in that abortion procedure against her religious beliefs or walk out, be accused of neglect of her patient, potentially lose her job or her medical license. Um, And that's a decision that uh, no one should ever have to make. uh, especially on such a split moment and with a known uh, religious religious objection. Uh, she ended up participating in the procedure, but as you can imagine, this, this, uh, this was very traumatic. Um, and so there was uh, a complaint filed with the Office for Civil Rights at HHS. Um, under the Trump administration, they issued a notice of violation against uh, UVMMC. Um, because they knowingly scheduled somebody with a religious objection to uh, abortion, to participate in the abortion procedure. Their their regulations allowed scheduling in the case of uh, allowed allowed scheduling kind of this like opt out where oh we'll try not to schedule people but if, if you know we need to for patient care or something kind of amorphous um, like that um, then it, then it allowed them to sk- schedule people with objections uh, for these types of procedures um, because the the medical center wouldn't change their policies DOJ sued in federal court to uh, to enforce this. Um, However, again, uh, in January 2021, there was a new administration. um, And so uh, DOJ just quietly dismissed this lawsuit. Uh, There was no settlement, no agreement. They just reevaluated and thought that, you know, their policy didn't violate 
didn't violate um, the conscience protection laws. Um, and there was nothing for the nurse who was forced to go through to go through this uh, horrific, horrific situation. Um, and so I will say that the um, so it's unfortunate that the current administration doesn't seem seem as apt to enforce these uh, conscience laws. Uh, but I will encourage individuals if you do, um, if you your conscience rights are violated, you should still file a complaint because even if this administration doesn't doesn't uh, uh, go through or investigate, there's opportunities for a future administration that is more uh, more um, focused on enforcing these rights to to go through and to do something. Uh, so as you said, there's no there's no private right um, of action. So this nurse is unable to go to court to sue her employer for violating her conscience rights because HHS won't step in. And so that's why uh, states or even at the federal level, getting these private rights of action into the federal conscience laws are important. Well, and I think it's important to note, too, that the Department of Justice quietly dismissed that suit at the request of once again, uh, Secretary Becerra, Health and Human Services, which is maybe uh, a good place for us to, um, to return to in uh, the final couple minutes of our conversation. W- tell us what, what happened with this notice of violation that was issued against the state of California and, and where that's, that's gone. Um, so, so as you mentioned earlier, uh, Vicera is known for uh, trying to force nuns to provide a uh, to bri- provide abortion coverage. Um, so, there was a California law that required uh, groups to provide uh, insurance coverage for abortion. Obviously, uh, numerous religious organizations uh, didn't didn't want to do that um, based on their religious beliefs. Um, and so one of the groups that the California tried to force to include abortion coverage was um, group of nuns. Uh, the, uh, and so they filed um, a complaint with the Office for Civil Rights at HHS over this. Um, under the Trump administration, the Office for Civil Rights uh, issued notice of violation to California. Uh, they actually issued uh to, uh, for for two different violations, um, and so they um, so again the the enforcement mechanism is taking away federal funds for violations of these rights, um, and so the uh, centers for Medicaid and Medicare services issued a disallowance of certain Medicaid funds um, as uh, as an enforcement mechanism for this violation, um, and this was Secretary Becerra specifically was. Um, this uh, notice of violation um, and the disallowance was directed towards him as the the top uh, top lawyer for the state of California. Um, however, this uh, this disallowance was appealed, um, which was California's right. But with the change of administration, uh, HHS under Secretary Becerra seemed to have a change of heart and uh, withdrew the disallowance and decided that there actually was no violation. Um, of conscience laws, um, and that there was no violation for him, Becerra, to uh, to try to force nuns to provide abortion coverage. Um, so, as I think you can see, there's this there's this ongoing theme of litigation and positions that uh, Secretary Becerra took uh, when he was AG of California that are now being affected at HHS under his direction. Uh, there seems to be a clear conflict of interest between between his. Um, his litigation positions in the past and 
his uh, overseeing and implementation of rules and decisions and at HHS. I want to pause you right there, Rachel, because we've got one more thing I want to talk about, but I got to say goodbye to our radio listeners. We're at the end of our time. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, live well. For our podcast listeners, we're going to keep talking here for just another minute because I think there's there's something else, and I don't mean to be you know, just kind of spending our whole half hour picking on uh, Mr. Becerra. But there's really, there's actually some very important things here that, that, that are worthy of our attention that we need to know about. What, um, what can you tell us, Rachel, about um, the Conscience and Religious Freedom Division at Health and Human Services? You know, how did that come about and, and what's happening to it now? So my EPPC colleague, Roger Severino, uh, was actually the head of the Office for Civil Rights at HHS under Trump. Uh, uh, religious liberty and conscience rights are um, important, important civil rights. Uh, they're enshrined in law. Um, the First Amendment protects religion. And so, uh, so Roger created this conscience and religious freedom division as part of the Office for Civil Rights at HHS to focus specifically on these, um, on these uh, rights and to enforce protections uh, under the law, which had been ignored in a lot of ways um, in prior in prior administrations, um, and so this the conscious and religious freedom division was the division that uh, that was involved in the Vermont case that was involved in the um, issuing the the disallowance of Medicaid funds for um, against Becerra in California uh, for forcing nuns to provide abortion coverage. Um, but uh, once once uh, again, I sound like a broken record today. I think the come January twenty twenty one with um, uh, Biden administration and Becerra's secretary, um, this division uh, was folded into the Office for Civil Rights. So they're no longer, the career professionals who are experts on these laws are no longer working on these issues. They're not being consulted on any of these rules. They're just being informed about what's happening after the fact. Um, and so they basically eliminated it without officially eliminating it. Mm. Um, and so it's really unfortunate that, uh, that that they would want to get rid of the conscience and religious freedom division and ignore those rights and those protections that um, Americans have under law. Well, thanks thanks for giving that. And I, you know, I uh, maybe again sound a bit like a broken record, but the South Dakota Catholic Conference has really been encouraging um, some of our state policymakers to think about ways that they can put those protections and remedies in state law because there is. There's really a lack of confidence based on all this evidence that um, these really important uh, rights, these fundamental human rights, um, are not going to have any relief at the federal level. So, Rachel, this has just been a, a great conversation. So grateful for your expertise. Thank you for being the watchdog on on our behalf. You know, holding, um, you know, seeking accountability on these really important uh, pro-life and other issues. At the, at the federal level. Thanks so much. Thanks, Chris. And thank you as always, dear listeners, for tuning in. If you've got some feedback, if you like this show, if you get some ideas for future shows, don't hesitate to reach out. You can go to sdcatholicconference.org, click contact us. We'll be back for another pro-life episode in this Respect Life Month next week. We're going to be joined by Dale Barcher, the executive director of South Dakota Right to Life. Until then, live well. Thank you.